Good morning, Theo 101. How are you all this morning? Excellent. Yeah, great. It's a Monday. Woo, I love Mondays, she said hilariously. Okay, so we have a My few bed was so warm this morning. Oh, I just I felt like leave? a statue in my bed. I was just like, <laughs> I can't do this today. <laughs> but I did. You need an alarm clock. I, I have two little kids. They'll yeah, wake yeah, you yeah. up. Um, okay, so we have a few announcements for you all before we get going with our lecture. One of them is that your midterm grades are all entered. They are in. And we're pretty happy with how you all are doing. You may have gotten an email from Dr. Doak, but you all were, were about on track with the university average. So you all are doing well. We're happy with your progress. Yes. Totally happy. Um, a reminder that this Friday, don't come early. So the 15 of you that come 50 minutes early, don't do that on Friday, okay? There's going to be a group in here. We're going to need to pass in and out with another big group that's going to be going out as we go in. I'll send you an email reminder, but just so you know, they'll be done around 1040 or 1045, they said. So just be respectful of them as we pass in and out. Otherwise, everything is as normal on Friday. Thank you. And we're adding a new phrase to the creed. Exciting. I'm very excited about that. Yes. So should we should we recite the creed before we talk about it or should we talk about No, it I think we should say the what the phrase is and then we should recite the creed okay. right before the speaker like comes that. out as we always do. So the new phrase that we're adding is I believe, I believe in, in Jesus Christ. Christ. So we're adding another I believe statement. I believe in Jesus Christ. So the creed is I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Pause. I believe in Jesus Christ. So obviously we're taking a really serious new turn in the creed here, introducing by name Jesus. Yes, and a lot of people, I mean, this is kind of a fun pastor joke, and, and we talked about it ahead of time, like, is, is Christ the last name of Jesus? Yeah, like Jesus' first name is Jesus, and his last nah. name is Christ, like Mr. Christ. I always thought it was his middle name, because Jesus Christ Superstar is And Superstar would name. be his last name? Yeah. yeah, I'm a musical yeah. theater nerd. That was for the ten of you. You're welcome. I get it. Yeah. So Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? The word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which means to be anointed with oil. Call back to Friday, our little ritual that we did, um, which is actually a translation or an equivalent to a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word is Mashiach. Do you want to speak Hebrew today? How about I'll say Ready? it, then you say it. Mashiach. Mashiach in Hebrew, the verb, means to actually smear someone with oil, to smear with oil. And so this word Mashiach, if you thought, hey, that word Mashiach kind of sounds like the word Messiah vaguely, it's because that is actually where we get our word Messiah. It's from this word Mashiach. Now, so to, biblical yeah. scholar Brian Doak, yeah. Is Jesus the only anointed one in the Bible? Yeah, I mean, in the Old Testament um, has numerous people that are anointed with oil and are actually called a Mashiach by that very word, like King David being a very famous example of that as well. And so we're going to have to unpack this over the next few lectures, right, that are all going to be devoted to Jesus. Um, namely, this idea, what does it mean for Jesus to be a Messiah? How is, wh who is Jesus exactly and what is happening there? Speaking of which, this raises a question that I think is difficult as well. We've been reading through the Bible, bit by bit, and we're now, this week, I think we're in Leviticus and Numbers or something like that. We just got through Exodus. It's like Jesus by name has not appeared in the Bible yet, and this could cause confusion for Christians. A lot of the Bible goes by, indeed, like three-fourths of it, without mentioning Jesus by name. So where is Jesus in the Old Testament? Is the Old Testament about something different and then the Bible switches tone? Or how does that work? Oh, wow. Well, the early church certainly didn't think so. They thought that Jesus was 
everywhere to be seen in the Old Testament. In fact, the early church writers of the New Testament, as we have it now, you can tell that they saw Jesus throughout the scriptures in the Old and the New, or well, they were writing the New Testament, but in the Old Testament in particular. And we know that by their constant references to the Old Testament. So they're constantly referring to, they might be talking about biblical figures, they might be talking about Jesus as, and then they would compare him to another figure that came before in the Old Testament, and we usually call that kind of a reading a typology. So they would say, Jesus, for example, is an anointed one, just like, as David, right, in, in the line of David. So we know that the early church saw Jesus throughout the Hebrew scriptures, um, and it really was a matter of discerning, like, and asking the Spirit of God to help them see, and so we want to encourage you to do that as well, even in the really obscure readings, um, and you guys are, this is funny that we're in midterms, and we're reading Leviticus. A lot of people don't necessarily think of this as super exciting. I actually really like it, because I like just the kind of odd details and stuff. You're, into, you you're into Leviticus. I, well, I, I think it's interesting, yeah. right? I like knowing a little bit more about the ins and outs of another culture. What about you? Yeah, well, in Leviticus, there's a lot of blood. I mean, this is very gory language. It's kind of strange, all these blood and disease and so on. But this blood language actually becomes really important for thinking about Jesus and the idea that Jesus somehow functions for Christians as a sacrifice. One of the most famous, when you, when you mentioned typology, I thought one of the most famous typologies that Christians have used to talk about Jesus, the idea that there was something in the past and now there's a new thing, which is kind of like that old thing, that's kind of like what typology is in a simple way, is the idea of Abraham and Isaac. Do we remember that story from the book of Genesis? You can nod your head if you remember that story. It's yeah. a really kind of almost scary story. I well, think it's, scary. it's very frightening, but the idea that, that the father is supposed to sacrifice the son and somehow this is a test and this means something for God already has faint echoes with, with ideas that we'll come to recognize if we haven't already as being about Jesus. But even Isaac, the idea that Isaac, when he goes up the mountain, he carries with him the wood on which he is to be sacrificed. And so Christians saw that and said, ha, yes, this is just like Jesus in the gospel story when he's on his way to be crucified. He's asked to carry his own cross. And so Christians began to make little details that on a mystical level or even just purely on a literary level could tie Jesus' experience into the experience of characters in the Old Testament and show that in fact, in some mysterious way in God's plan, Jesus actually had been there all along. Yeah, one of the things that we want to invite you to do is to think about the nature of God in the Old and the New Testaments. One of the common uh, misreadings or mistakes according to traditional teaching that people come, or conclusions that they come to when they're reading the Old and New Testaments is that there are different natures of God present. But traditional Christian teaching uh, says that God is the same. Uh, the character of God is the same. We may have different parts revealed throughout time, but the character of God is the same in the Old and the New Testaments. So be looking for who is God and how is God portrayed in Leviticus as well as in Matthew or Mark or Luke. So that's just an exhortation that we want to give to you um, as you're reading along. And we are really excited because we have our first repeat lecturer of the day, or of the, of the semester, this morning to teach We've us had repeated lectures that. today. Where were you? Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the semester. Yes. Um, and, and do you want to, to start introducing? Yeah, totally. Do you guys remember Dr. Away. Javier Garcia? Do you remember Dr. Garcia? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Spontaneous applause. Dr. Garcia can hear you spontaneously applause, applauding <laughs> him from behind That's good. the curtain. It's encouraging. Dr. Garcia has a PhD in theology from Cambridge. He's one of the smartest people I know. He just has a deep, I think one thing that impresses me about him as a friend and a colleague is just 
how deeply committed he is to faith, not just publicly in giving lectures and so on, but how deeply he is committed to faith, to living out the principles of faith in his everyday life. So I'm really impressed by that. So fancy degree, fancy education. He has a book coming out on Dietrich Bonhoeffer pretty soon, but also like a really earnest, real Christian life that I just admire a lot. And, but he's not all serious, which is one of my favorite things about him. Dr. Garcia has a, a number of hobbies, including one that we share, which is TV watching. He really enjoys <laughs> watching It's a rare hobby. Television. A rare it's rare, hobby. it's yeah. rare, but rare and wonderful as well. And you told me that he's a pretty good basketball player. Well, I don't know if he's a good basketball player. <laughs> he's a basketball player. He plays he's in a, there's a staff group that plays at noon every, every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Dr. Garcia hoops it up at that time. He's also, he's, he's a fantastic guitar player, though. He's really into guitar and a fantastic dancer. He's a great dancer. As we he alluded to in his Trinity that. lecture. Um, how, <laughs> yeah. how about with that introduction, can we res- do our ritual and recite the creed together up to where we are, adding the words, I believe in Jesus Christ? Can we do it? Are you ready? I believe, I believe in God, the Father. Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ. Would you join us in welcoming to the stage Dr. Javier Garcia? Welcome, Dr. Garcia. Hi everyone, how we doing? Good, okay, I, I, I like the woo, it's uh, exciting. Um, thank you Dr. Payne and Dr. Doak for your wonderful introduction. All of that is false, I want to say, except for the basketball that I'm bad at it, so you can take, you can take that with you. So let's get started. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This may be considered the central question of the four Gospels, the Bible, and of Christianity itself. As we hear the stories of Jesus Christ, we cannot stay neutral, as if it didn't matter how we might respond to this Nazarene of 2,000 years ago. Instead, we are confronted with this question, which is put to us in that personal address. Who do you say that I am? In Matthew 16, Jesus first asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Here the question is still broad, and the stakes don't seem very high. The disciples are talking about other people, after all. They answer, some say John the Baptist, but others, Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Many of Jesus' listeners are divided. Maybe he is some sort of prophet, but they're not sure which one. This mixed reaction to Jesus is still true today. Some say Jesus was a good man, a wise teacher, maybe even to some degree a prophet, but these remain vague notions without much consequence. People go on with their lives as if it didn't matter. But Jesus ups the ante when he asks the disciples directly, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus praises Peter saying, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. In Peter's words, we have the confirmation of who Jesus is, the Messiah and the son of the living God, a truth given by divine revelation. And if this is true, it changes everything because Jesus is the savior of humanity. This passage indicates that we should be like Peter in proclaiming and believing Jesus to be the Messiah. 
as the Gospel of John puts it very explicitly towards the end. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. Knowledge of Christ is not something neutral that we can simply let pass us by. On the contrary, it should bring us to recognize him as a long-awaited Messiah and believe in him. In our study of the Creed, we have now come to the phrase, I believe in Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we have introduced the subject of Christology, that is, the theological study of Jesus. So if you ever hear this big word, Christology, it just means the study of Jesus Christ. We can approach this subject from many different angles. We might look, for example, at what it means for Jesus to be fully human and fully divine. Or we could take a deep dive into the atonement, what it means exactly for Christ to atone for our sins on the cross. Or we might take a deep dive as well into the threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. You will be hearing about some of these aspects of Christology in the coming weeks. What I want to do today, however, is something different, namely to provide an introduction to Christology by highlighting four foundational ideas that should inform our understanding of Jesus. And hopefully this will inform your understanding of Jesus no matter what angle of Christology you might be considering. So these are the four points of this lecture. If you want to write down your notes, this is the time. First point, in all his works, Jesus Christ reveals the steadfast love of God towards us. In all his works, Jesus Christ reveals the steadfast love of God towards us. Second, the cross is the culmination of God's love towards us in Jesus through his death for our sins and subsequent conquering of death in the resurrection. Third, for us to be saved, we cannot remain separate from Christ, but instead we need to be united to him by faith. And fourth, through union with Christ, we enter into the life of faith, which imitates the way of Christ and is therefore cruciform, which simply means it takes the form of the cross. So what is your love language? What is your love language? Can we talk about love languages? Do we, do we have uh, people in the crowd who like to talk about love languages? Maybe uh, hands up. Uh, words of affirmation? Okay, quality time, physical touch. I'm forgetting the other ones now. What are they? Gift giving, ah yes. And acts of service, the ones that I'm horrible at. So I really like quality time. I like to spend one-on-one -on -one time with people and just deepen my relationship with them, uh, get to know them a little bit more, and that makes me feel fulfilled and, and loved. I am extremely bad at gift giving though. Maybe some of you are like this. Can you put your hand up if you're super bad at gift giving? So if I give a gift, it's very predictable. I will always give you a book. Or if I'm feeling a little bit risky, I am going to give you a gift card to a bookstore, okay? So I just want you to read. That is my, my cross. Um, and it'll be your cross too if you're a friend of mine. But I also find it very annoying when people who have gift giving as, and gift, give, gift receiving as their love language always are talking about their half birthdays, their quarter birthdays, 
Maybe you're one of these people. It's my birthday week. Am I supposed to give you gifts all the time? Or um, when my sister turned 30, my other sister said, let's do a 30 for 30 and do 30 gifts leading up, because she's one of these birthday week, month, year people. And so I, I just don't get it. Uh, it's very much pressure. So I do like reading, I, li I like writing and receiving meaningful birthday cards. Uh, so I think that counts as words of affirmation. So I'd say quality time and words of affirmation are, are important to me. In any event, language related to God's love for humanity. So you can see that love language, I'm doing an awkward segue into God's love language for us. Language related to God's love for humanity and particularly towards his people is everywhere in the Bible. The Hebrew Bible constantly refers to the steadfast love of God, which never fails despite the blunders of his people Israel. The Hebrew term hesed denotes unbroken covenant faithfulness on God's side, which is evident in his repeated mercies to his stiff-necked and hard-hearted people. This is how God reveals his glory to Moses in Exodus 34, when he describes himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty. Psalm 136 illustrates this movingly by recounting Israel's history with the refrain, his steadfast love endures forever in every verse. I encourage you to read Psalm 136 to get that refrain again and again. The language of God's love towards us is sharpened in the New Testament in relation to Jesus Christ. One need look no further than Johannine literature to see the importance of love for understanding Jesus. John is called the beloved disciple, and the word love occurs more in the Gospel of John than all three of the other Gospels combined. The most famous verse in John relating to God's love, of course, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Here we see quite clearly that it is out of love for the world that God gives his son with the explicit aim that people might come to believe in him. Later in the Gospel of John, writing of the Last Supper, the author comments, Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's John chapter 13 verse 1. We can take this statement as describing the progression of Jesus' love for humanity from incarnation to death to resurrection. He loves us in taking on human flesh. He loves us in dying on the cross for us. He loves us in rising from the dead. In this way, he loves us to the end, having come to his own and bringing to completion the work of salvation. In all his works, Christ reveals and enacts God's love towards us. Indeed, this is where the unity of the Old and New Testaments becomes evident. There is no division in the Bible between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New, as if we had two gods in competition, one who is all about justice and the other who is all about love. And I hope you recognize that in the early church, this division, this belief in two gods was condemned as a heresy, and it was called Marcionism. So I hope that there are no Marcionites out here. Instead, the hesed love of the Father 
comes to perfect fulfillment in the work of Christ. Christ repeatedly states that he has come to speak the words and to do the works given to him by the Father. The unity of the Bible is manifest in God's love for humanity and its culmination in the coming of Christ. Do we have any rom-com fans in the audience? Put our hands up. Yes? Oh, not many. Okay, some, they're shy, but they're rising, rising. Okay, maybe you like classics like Harry Met Sally or 10 Things I Hate About You. Yes? No? Maybe so? How about 50 First Dates? Does anybody know 50 First Dates? Okay, good. Okay, good. I love 50 First Dates. That's the only one I like. So I have to admit, I generally hate romantic comedies. They frustrate me to the core. For me, the issue is not that they are formulaic and predictable. That's fine. It is their shameless sentimentality and need for happy endings that bother me. Why? Because they are completely unrealistic. They shy away from the dark reality about every true love story. It will end, and badly. Boo. In a word, whether sooner or later, human love is always conquered by death. Like it or not, and this is a dark thought, but true nonetheless, everything we have will be taken from us when we die, including those we love the most. It is only in the name of true romance that I object to happy endings. True romance is not about those butterfly feelings in your stomach, but about deep commitment that faces sin, suffering, and death with another person head on, till death do us part. Lately, I've been reading a lot of what I would call true romance in this sense of Christian love in the face of death. You could say I'm in a particular mood to talk about love, so bear with me. I'm awestruck by the confidence these Christians have in God's love, even in the darkest of circumstances. I read this brutal autobiography of a man who found his soulmate and had the most idyllic life with her. They traveled around the world and delighted in music and literature together. After meeting as atheists, they became Christians together while studying in Oxford, deepening their love through their faith. But in the end, his wife is struck by a rare illness and dies within a couple of months. The closing chapters of death and grief are gripping because of the importance of faith in their love. And C.S. Lewis, who was their friend in their time in Oxford and even during this whole grieving process, described this woman's death as a severe mercy, a mercy that was as severe as death, a death that was as merciful as love. And the book is called A Severe Mercy by Sheldon Fanalkin, if, if you're interested. There's also the farewell letters that the German lawyer James von Moltke wrote to his wife Freya when he was condemned to death for his involvement in conspiracy plots against Hitler. In letters that will make you weep, he speaks of how he is not afraid of death, how thankful he is for the years that they were blessed to spend together. In his last letter to Freya, he says to her, you are my 13th chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians. Without this chapter, no human being is truly human. It is only in our union, you and I, that we form a complete human being. We are one creative thought. And finally, there's my old friend, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Christian pastor, theologian, and resistor during the Second World War. And he wrote love letters to his young fiance, Maria von Wedemeyer, while he was in prison before he was eventually executed. Despite constant bomb raids around his prison and the gradual realization that he probably would never be released, Bonhoeffer could write to Maria in Christmas of 1943 the following words of hope. He writes, 
how hard it is inwardly to accept what defies our understanding. How great is the temptation to feel ourselves at the mercy of blind chance. How sinister the way in which mistrust and resentment steal into our hearts at such times. And how readily we fall prey to the childish notions that the course of our lives reposes in human hands. And then, just when everything is bearing down on us to such an extent that we can scarcely withstand it, the Christmas message comes to tell us that all our ideas are wrong, and that what we take to be evil and dark is really good and light because it comes from God. Our eyes are at fault, that is all. God is in the manger, wealth in poverty, light in darkness, succor in abandonment. No evil can befall us. Whatever men may do to us, they cannot but serve the God who is secretly revealed as love and rules the world and our lives. Let me repeat that last line. No evil can befall us. Whatever men may do to us, they cannot but serve the God who is secretly revealed as love and rules the world and our lives. These words radiate a resolute confidence in God's providential working in history, which is anchored in God's love that is manifested most perfectly in Christ. Indeed, all of these Christian love stories are rooted in the belief that God has revealed his love for us once and for all in Christ. And that is what motivates them in their courage in the face of death. This brings me to my second point. The cross is the culmination of God's love for us. In my last lecture, I spoke about how God is love in the Trinity, which compels us to love God and love our neighbor. It is in Christ's death for us, specifically, that God's love is fully revealed. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, this connection is made very explicitly between God's love and Christ's death. So let's listen to this passage. It reads, Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. And pay attention here to these next two sentences. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. You want to know what God's love is? Look at the crucified Christ. While we were yet sinners and enemies of God, Christ died for us and in our place. As the Gospel of John states, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends, which is exactly what Christ does for us. It is in Christ's atoning sacrifice for our sins that we see what love truly is and how we learn sacrificial love towards God and others. What is so powerful in the Christian story of God's love for the world is that in the end, the impossible happens. Love conquers death. The final limit to all human love and life, the ultimate enemy of death, is overcome in the resurrection. In the Old Testament, there's a book called The Song of Solomon. Hands up if you have heard of it. Okay, some people. Good, good. Traditionally, rabbis could not read this book until they were 33 because the content is so risque. In beautiful poetic language, 
It tells the story of two lovers and their desire and pursuit of one another. In the final culminating chapter, one lover calls out to another, saying, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Many Christian theologians have taken this as a description of the love of God for his bride, the church, the love of Christ for his bride, the church. His love proves as strong as death and conquers it through bodily resurrection. And I do fear that many of us don't prize the resurrection, don't prize our bodies, and don't put these two things together, that when we will rise, it'll be a bodily resurrection. But for Paul, this is central to the Christian faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul drives home the centrality of the bodily resurrection for Christianity. He argues that if the resurrection did not actually happen, then Christians are without hope and should be pitied the most out of anyone. It is only because Christ has risen from the dead that Christians can have hope that they too will rise in the end through faith. Where Adam was disobedient to God and sin and death entered the world through him, Christ was perfectly obedient to God, overcoming sin and death altogether. Paul adds that on judgment day, when Christ is crowned in triumph over his enemies, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You might be asking, how exactly do all these promises of Christianity get applied to our lives? Is it enough to know who Jesus is for us to be saved? This brings me to my third point. In order to be saved, we must be united to Jesus through faith. Without believing in Christ, without putting our trust in him, we remain separate from him and cut off from his promises. As Paul writes powerfully in Ephesians 2, apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and without hope in the world. But when we believe we are united to Christ by faith, we are justified before God, adopted into his family, brought into the church, and sanctified to do the good works he has prepared for us to do. The Reformation theologian John Calvin argues the following in his very famous book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. He states, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. We also, in turn, are said to be engrafted into him and to put on Christ. For, as I have said, all that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. So maybe you've noticed when you read the New Testament, there's a lot of language of being in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. This reflects the importance of being united to Christ. Our salvation depends on this union with Christ by faith. It is not enough merely to know who Jesus is. We must believe in him and in believing be united to him. You will see how the imagery of the bride and the bridegroom hinges on this union. Just as a bride and her bridegroom are united in marriage, so too the Christians and the church's relation with Christ are one of blessed union through faith. We can say of Christ what it says, what it says in the Song of Solomon, what the lovers say to one another. 
My beloved is mine, and I am his. Indeed, this is how what theologians have called the happy exchange occurs between Christ and the church. Just like a bridegroom would give to his bride what is his and receive from her what is hers. We give Jesus our sin, our death, and our damnation, and he gives us his righteousness, his life, and salvation. Seems like a good deal, if you ask me. This exchange is only possible if we are made one with the living God through Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. But what exactly does this union imply for the life of faith? I fear that so often in our evangelical churches, we rejoice in these truths without realizing the implications that they have for our lives. We love to talk about Jesus, how he loves the world, We love to talk about the atoning sacrifice on our sins, the hope of the resurrection. We love to sing songs about love, and many of our songs unfortunately communicate that Jesus is our boyfriend. Just to clarify, Jesus is not your boyfriend. So, it's just annoying. But we make faith all about us, about our salvation, our needs, our comfort. We have a very fluffy, comfortable faith. Especially in the Western church, we have forgotten what Christianity entails, which is nothing less than death itself. What we fail to realize is that through faith, we are united with the crucified Savior, and our whole lives should be an imitation of Him. We cannot enter into glory if we have not suffered with Him. We cannot know the King of glory before we know the man of sorrows. And Paul talks about this at length in Philippians chapter 3. So let's go back to Matthew 16, which was the chapter we started out with when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Later on in that chapter, Jesus goes on to say, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their, li- their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? And I think it's so significant that in the same chapter when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? He goes on to instruct his followers that if they are to be united to him, to follow him, they too must carry their crosses. Our lives as Christians will be cruciform. We must carry the cross and be formed by it. We must learn to sacrifice, to suffer, and to die every day as we seek to follow Jesus. Because ultimately, to believe in Jesus is not something static, like mere head knowledge. And I hope that from this course, you don't walk away thinking that, that this is just all mere head knowledge. Instead, to embark on faith is to embark on a life of discipleship, of following the risen Christ every day of our lives. It is to love God and love neighbor in the same cruciform love that we have received from Jesus. Fleming Rutledge, an Episcopal priest and theologian who wrote a massive 500-page book on the crucifixion, puts it this way. She writes, The cross reveals its meaning as it takes shape in the experience of believers. Let me say that again. The cross reveals its meaning as it takes shape in the experience of believers. If you want to know who Jesus is, take up your cross 
and follow him. As you're reading for this week, I have given you an excerpt from the spiritual classic, The Imitation of Christ. And he has a powerful meditation on the cross, which I want to read here. You'll have to excuse the old English language, but I like it, so you'll have to listen to it. So consider these words. Why fearest thou then to take up the cross which leadeth to a kingdom? In the cross is health, in the cross is life, in the cross is protection from enemies, in the cross is heavenly sweetness, in the cross strength of mind, in the cross joy of the spirit, in the cross the height of virtue, in the cross the perfection of holiness. There is no health in the soul, no hope of eternal life save in the cross. Take up therefore thy cross and follow Jesus and thou shalt go into eternal life. And this is the part that gets me. He writes, He went before thee bearing his cross, died for thee upon the cross, that thou also mayest bear thy cross and mayest love to be crucified on it. What? For if thou be dead with him, thou shalt also live with him. And if thou be a partaker of his suffering, thou shalt also be of his glory. What a powerful meditation. Our champion set his face like flint at the task set before him and counted it as joy to be crucified for us. What would it look like for us who have been unified with this crucified Savior to carry our cross and to love to be crucified on it? I will end with a memory that is dear to me. As you know, I had the privilege of studying at the University of Cambridge, a magical place where some of the greatest minds have left their mark of brilliance on the world. I was very lucky to get in, very lucky to stay in, and very lucky to get my degree from there. I have many fond memories of my time there, mostly of friends of elaborate meals in ancient dining halls, and I must say, of very, very good wine. The cellars are deep and they're good. I remember seeing Stephen Hawking riding along the cobbled streets and halcyon days when I punted along the River Cam. But one of the memories that I cherish is of the humble chapel of my college, Peterhouse. Now, the college is very new. It dates from 1284. And the chapel is even newer. It was only built in 1628. It does not boast the majestic Gothic architecture of other chapels that are more famous, and it's tucked away from the center of town, easily overlooked by tourists. Every day, the dean of the college would say morning and evening prayers there. Only a handful of us would ever join him in this dark space, lit only by candlelight in the corner booths where we would stand, sit, and kneel at appropriate times. We followed the Anglican Book of Common Prayer with its haunting language, bathed in scripture. After a moment of solemn, si solemn silence, we would begin by saying, O Lord, open thou our lips, and our mouth shall show forth thy praise. O God, make speed to save us. O Lord, make haste to help us. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. For me, one of the most powerful moments in our time of prayer was when we would say the Apostles' Creed, and we would turn to face the east window. The stained glass window from 1628 depicts the crucifixion of Jesus dramatically, like I've never seen before. In the foreground is Christ, suspended in ghostly white, hanging limply from the cross. 
He is surrounded by medieval figures with spears looking menacingly at him. Mary and Mary Magdalene are cramped in a corner as the figures crowd in on the scene. The most striking part of the window are the wild cobalt clouds that dominate the upper part, set behind the elevated cross and the spears that pierce the sky. The blues and the blacks of the clouds swirl behind Jesus to suggest the cosmic significance of his death. Everything is heightened almost to a breaking point. White, blues, blacks, clouds, spears, figures, heaven and earth, history and eternity all clashing at once. And because of this, the window captures the crisis of the cross and its eternal consequence incredibly. Every time I would say from the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, I would look at that window and I would look at that crucified Savior and I would tremble inside. Who do you say that I am? After this lecture and through this course, I hope you will come to know that Jesus is the Messiah and that you will believe in him. I will end with the words that we would always use to end our prayers in Peterhouse Chapel. Please pray with me. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Garcia. Thank you. Thank you.